The reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 22 and read through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 22 through Mark 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around... And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after It has come with power. We all have those moments in our lives that alter the entire course of our lives. Some of those turning points are positive. Some of them are not so positive. You might call them negative. But we all have those moments, and we can look back in the history of our lives And note these large points along the way that are turning points. For some, it may be surrounding school. You may have been accepted to a very competitive program. For some, it may have been the day that you quit school altogether. The turning points in your life often surround family, marriage, children, loss, moves, or around our jobs. It may have been a promotion or a transfer or the day you walked out. 
when we come to this passage in the book of Mark this morning, it is one of these turning points. It is the turning point in the gospel according to Mark. It is Jesus turning, if you will, towards Jerusalem, towards the betrayal, towards the beating, towards the bloody cross. It's Jesus and His life that that Mark has been detailing. It's turning from who is this man, Jesus Christ, to what will He accomplish? The turning point revealing why Jesus has come. When we considered the previous passage a couple of weeks ago, I titled it, Opening Our Eyes, as we noticed there in the passage that Jesus takes the blind man and allows him to see. And we pointed out that it was for the disciples initially, but also for us to see that there are areas in our lives that there's a spiritual blindness, a spiritual obscurity that we aren't seeing as clearly as we ought. As a result of Jesus accomplishing this miracle and exposing to the disciples that they weren't seeing clearly and helping them to see more clearly, now He speaks to their hearts. So the title this morning is connected to the title from the previous sermon on the previous passage. Not just does He open our eyes, but He also speaks to our hearts. Look at verse 32 of today's text. He was stating the matter plainly. That is, not speaking plain English as much as not holding back. He was showing them why He came. And we see that displayed in the text that we're considering together this morning. Only a miracle can open anyone's eyes to the reality of who Jesus is. Truth, the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about the gospel, it cannot be understood apart from that initial miracle taking place. Until God gives us a heart that can understand a new heart, we can't understand the truth about Him. Or the gospel. So he opens our eyes and he speaks to our hearts. One of the first things that God says to us after he opens our eyes, you know what it is? You're mine. Regeneration gives us a new heart. We respond in faith and repentance. We're justified before him and adopted into his family. He opens up our spiritually blind eyes and he speaks to our hearts and says, you're mine. You're a child of mine. So much of Jesus' teaching has been veiled in parables up until this point. But this is a turning point. The truths of his teaching were hidden in the parables, but not anymore. The full reality of his mission is now being put on display. And that full reality of Christ coming to die and to save his people and to be buried, and to offer forgiveness of sins, and to be raised again, and the promise of His return. That full reality comes with demands from God's people. It isn't just a neat story in a far-off land, but He is building a kingdom. And there are people, us people, in that kingdom. And the full reality comes with demands, gospel demands on our lives. But it doesn't just come with gospel demands on us as His people. The full reality of his mission comes with gospel grace in order that we might fulfill those demands. 
Let's walk through the passage together, beginning in verse 27. Confessing Christ. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Just a quick point with regard to that. He went to Caesarea Philippi. The opportunity that is presented here by Christ to make a stated stance for him, we know what he's about to ask, who do you say that I am? He didn't go into the protected walls of a church or synagogue full of like-minded believers and cookie-cutter Christians, but he went to the center of cultic worship and paganism in that day, to Caesarea Philippi. He goes out into the open, into the public square, in order to ask this question, in order to give an opportunity for his disciples to stake their claim with regard to their allegiance. And this two-question inquiry was initiated by Christ himself. It's really helpful to learn from Jesus here with regard to the use of the interrogative. If you want to know where someone is, the best way to do it is not to tell them where you think they are. Just ask a question. Just ask them where they are. It's what Jesus does here. Who do people say that I am? The first question. Who do people say that I am? Who are those people out there? Who do they think I am? What are they saying about me? Jesus is, in essence, asking his disciples. The only, peop- the only answer he gets is prophets. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. John the Baptist is a prophet, Elijah is a prophet. In fact, Malachi, another prophet, tells us, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, God, speaking through Malachi. I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before, not, not as the coming day. So, had the disciples and other Jews known their scriptures, they would know that with the coming of John the Baptist and the spirit of Elijah, that Jesus was not them. And John the Baptist and Elijah, I've alluded to it already, they're basically the same answer, and we'll get into that more as we work through chapter 9 in the coming weeks. They're basically the same answer, though. They're, they're radical prophets. They both wore odd clothing. They both had eccentric diets. And with Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. There's the hints of resurrection there that they know something about the promised one and God's plan for his people. There are hints of resurrection or even reincarnation, especially considering not only is Elijah dead, he's been dead a long time, but John the Baptist is dead at this point. And still people are saying, maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's John the Baptist. But his disciples on this day could have answered a number of other things. We've seen it ourselves as we've worked through Mark's gospel up until this point. Some say he's a demon-possessed man. That's what the Pharisees were saying. Some say he's a man who's lost his mind. That's what his family was saying. Jesus doesn't discuss the wrongness of their answers, of John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He doesn't ask, is that all? Aren't people saying anything else? With no further discussion about the wrongness of these answers, Jesus cuts to the chase with question number two. He continued questioning them, verse 29. He took in their answer, didn't respond 
Didn't ask them to develop it. Didn't ask who said what. He simply continues, but who do you say that I am? It's like Jesus really isn't all that bothered by all the wrong answers out there, I mean, which is helpful, right? Because sometimes it can be overwhelming with all the wrong thoughts out there about who God is and about who we are in Christ. But Jesus goes right to the point. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what they all say, but what about you? What about you who've been with me, who've watched me, who've heard me, who've witnessed the miracles? Who do you say that I am? The all-important direction of this pointed inquiry. Jesus isn't worried about being accused of being demon-possessed or insane or a mere teacher or a prophet of old. Who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking on behalf of the group, you are the Christ. There's a lot wrapped up in that short answer. Peter is convinced that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One of God, the Rescuer, the King, the Deliverer, the One that God's people were waiting for. Now, Jesus does respond to Peter. Peter doesn't, Mark doesn't record it. He only records that Jesus says, offers a warning to tell no one about him. Mark omits it entirely. Likely due to Peter's humility. Remember, Peter is the one who is feeding the eyewitness information to Mark, who's recording this account of the gospel. Why would Peter not tell Mark to record this part? You remember the full interaction. Matthew records it for us. Jesus said to him, in response to him saying, you are the Christ, Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus says a lot of glowing things to Peter. And so Peter, in his humility, by the time he is telling Mark about these eyewitness accounts, doesn't include that. What he does include is this twofold questioning from Christ. Who do people say that I am? And then the more pointed one, but who do you say that I am? Which is worth us considering. Well, what about us this morning? What about you? You who are here, who have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, who do you say that Jesus is? You who are standing far off and not living for Jesus, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Or those who are skeptics and doubters about the truth and veracity of God and His Word, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Young people, if, if you understand what I'm saying, you have the capacity to know who Christ is. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? 
And if you haven't been hit by any of those three, the question is relevant for every single one of us, for all people. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? It's relevant for me. It's relevant for you. Is our answer, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one of God, the rescuer, the king, the deliverer, the one that God's people were waiting for and the one that God's people today are waiting for his return. Speaking of his return, in each of the sections that I've I've broken the passage into three sections this morning, each of them had have these resurrection and return themes embedded in them here in this first section. He is the Messiah. You are the Christ included in that. And everything that they would have been learning as good little Jewish boys and girls was about the Messiah who would suffer. But not just the Messiah who would suffer. He, He was a risen and living and ruling Messiah. Now, they misunderstood a lot of that and wanted to skip over the difficulty But all throughout the Old Testament, we heard it last week from Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Or in Isaiah 53, one of the most common passages about the crucifixion of Christ, the Messiah who would come. Verse 10, he will prolong his days. He wouldn't stay dead, but he would would be raised again. He is a resurrected Messiah, a resurrected Christ. Now, verses 27 through 30 are wonderful, and it would be excellent if that was just the end of the passage in one sense, if we were going for comfortability and not eternal reality. Because up until that point, is great. You're the Christ. Peter got the question right. Everybody else is wrong. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. But the passage doesn't stop there. And Jesus began to teach them. What was he teaching them? Well, he, he's, he's taught them who he is. This is who I am. I am the Christ, verses 29 through 31. I'm the Son of Man. This is what that means. Jesus is teaching that as well, not just who I am, but this is what it means that I'm the Christ. Verse 31, I must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. Not only is he teaching who he is and what that means, but he also teaches how it will affect us. He summoned the crowd to his disciples, verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, here are the effects on you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. But he also continues teaching the final outcome of it all. Verse 38, he's coming again in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Even those who were there, he goes on to say in the first verse of the next chapter, some of them won't die until they see the kingdom of God come with power. That'll be six days later, but that's next week's passage with the transfiguration. Jesus began to teach them. They said, you are the Christ. And he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Now, it's 
Jesus was not simply emphasizing his humanity here when he refers to him being, himself being the Son of Man. Again, he's pointing to those Old Testament passages, those promises of old. He's not just noting, I'm a real man or I'm human. He is noting that the divine Son became a man. And he triumphed over sin and death before returning to be joined to the prior glory with his Father, inheriting an everlasting kingdom. It has Daniel 7 oozing out of it. Verses 13 and 14, With the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Everlasting dominion which will not pass away is redundant, but it's glorious redundancy. Jesus began to teach them, and he was teaching them plainly, not obscure parables, but straightforward truth to their hearts, to our hearts. But Peter couldn't handle the plain, straightforward truth. Verse 32, Jesus was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter couldn't handle the truth, so it leads to him rebuking Jesus. He took him aside, began to rebuke him. You know what? We respond so similarly when we do not like the truth. I mean, we're not looking for Jesus to pull him aside to give him a piece of our mind, but we're prone to altering the, the meaning a little bit, questioning the clarity. I'm not sure that's exactly what that text means. I'm not sure that this principle that I see here so plainly actually affects me in my current context. So he starts suggesting something to the contrary. At the end of the day, it's an attempt to rebuke Christ and his commands. Peter was not just slightly misunderstanding something. Peter, and not Peter alone, but all the disciples, their take on the issue at hand was dangerous and had to be corrected. Peter is the spokesman, is the only one who's recorded saying anything, but he's not the only one misunderstanding or rebuking Jesus. Look at verse 33. Turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. When Jesus turns around, he realizes, okay, Peter's the spokesman, but they're all thinking the same thing. They, they all have something against this truth that I've just stated about who I am and what I must do in order to accomplish the mission that my Father has sent me on. Peter was the spokesman, but they were all exhibiting the demonic doctrine. Peter was proof that they were unwittingly carrying the doctrine of demons, not unlike Satan himself. Early in Jesus' ministry, the temptation from Satan, Matthew 4, the devil took him up on a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, which called for the now-renowned rebuke to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, 
but man's. Now, Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. It's not a name-calling issue here. Just like if you go back to Matthew's account of this, Jesus is not intending on building the church on or with Peter in some special way. The words in Peter's mouth, in both instances, the first instance, you are the Christ, and the second instance, rebuking him. The words is what, Peter, what Jesus is referring to, to you are the Christ, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Upon this rock, the truth of your statement that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And to the rebuke, the words coming out of his mouth, get behind me. Satan. Why was Peter so undiscerning and clueless about the mission of Christ? Because normal or natural reason assumes that a savior of the world would come with power and position and prestige. And Christ has none of that from an earthly standpoint. But spiritual reason or supernatural reason says To that assumption, exactly what Jesus said here. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. When we view things too horizontally and forget that we live in a so-called vertical or spiritual world, when we view things too temporally and not spiritually, we are guilty of setting our mind on man's interests, on the things of this earth, rather than the things of God. But notice even here, I mentioned this resurrection theme threaded throughout Even as Jesus began to teach them in verse 31, he doesn't just emphasize the suffering or the rejection or the the death, but he says, after three days rise again. There's hope instilled. It's not all bad news. But they've heard something they disagree with. They've already closed their mind, and Peter's deciding how to rebuke Jesus at that point. Rather than listening to the full argument, more bells might ring with regard to the promises of the Old Testament And he would be less likely to find himself in this situation, not just Peter, but the other disciples as well. The same is true for us. Being acquainted with the whole countenance of God's Word and seeking to apply it to every part of our lives. So the confession of Christ, confessing Christ. The second point, now that we're done with it, I'll give you the title contesting Christ, rebuking him. And point number three, beginning in verse 34 through 9-1, coming after Christ, whoever would, pardon, if anyone wishes to come after me, coming after Christ. We must, as God's people, we must embrace the example of Jesus Christ as our model for living. That's the summons that he gives us here. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to accompany me, if anyone wishes to walk with me, to live with me, to love me, to obey me, here's the pathway for doing that. The claims of Christ on us as his people are thorough and comprehensive. He doesn't leave us guessing what he requires, what he demands. Nor does he demand only some Christians to live for him, to walk with him, to forsake everything for him. 
He says it very comprehensively here. If anyone wishes to come after me, all who wish to follow me, this is how it happens. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself. If we want to follow Jesus, we must be deniers of ourselves. Now, this is not giving up something that you like or enjoy. That may be necessary in your life. That's not what this text is talking about. It's not giving up something. It's giving yourself up. Acknowledging that you are not the center of the universe. It is hard, and I, and I spent some time trying to imagine a better remedy for our world today than more people denying themselves. More of us not living like we're the center of the world. Denial of self is the foundation of Christ-likeness. And if it is not laid well, the entire structure of our lives will fall and crumble and implode. So what is required in order for us to deny ourselves? Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. What's required in order for us to do that? If we're going to deny ourselves and follow after Jesus, we're going to have to have confident faith in him. A rock-solid hope in him who loves us with an everlasting love. We're going to have to have firm belief that he will keep all of his promises that he will compensate all our earthly losses, and he'll do so abundantly. The way the apostle wrote to the, wrote to the church at Rome about this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Are we convinced of that? The only way to live a constant life of denying ourselves and following after Christ is to be completely convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Paul continues, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. What is required for us to deny ourselves? Hope in the living God, confidence that he's a keeper of all of his promises. What is required in order for us to deny ourselves and follow after him? A high, correct, biblical view of Jesus Christ. Seeing him as the all in all, which will result every single time in a low view of ourselves and of mankind. This denying self is exchanging one set of seeming joys for that joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And that's not all. He must take up his cross. So with the denial of self and recognizing that we're not the sinner, but that constant urge within, that natural urge wants us to put us back in the center of everything again and again, exposes our sin. And so we take up our cross. We, we die to that sin. We die to that seeking after reputation and wanting to be the sinner. Taking up our cross. 
Now, if we polled everybody in, an, in town today and said, you know, what qualifies as a cross, we would get all kinds of answers. And there could be a number of different things, but I think it's helpful for us to note a couple of specific aspects with regard to that. One, what does not qualify as our cross here in this situation? What, what is Jesus not referring to? Take up his cross. He must, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross. What does not, what does not qualify as a cross here? Normal trials of life, difficulties of everyday life, your stubborn boss, your unjust professor, physical sicknesses, physical disabilities. These are not the crosses that Jesus is saying you must pick up and take up. We must take up those crosses that result from walking in step with Jesus Christ. Crosses result from embracing the narrow way of Jesus and his exclusivity. Crosses evidence the ethical practices in business and school and within the world. These are the crosses that we must bear. Crosses are extending ourselves in difficult situations for the sake of the gospel. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross. Our crosses come from our dedication to Christ, and our crosses are in proportion to our dedication to Christ. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and not only that, but take up his cross, and not only that, follow me. Walking step by step, lockstep with Christ, knowing him, loving him, communing with him, obeying him, rejoicing in him. Whoever wishes, it's wide open. Anyone can come to Christ. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. And you know what? It's worth it. Look at the argument that Jesus makes. Whoever wishes to save his life, whoever is unwilling to deny self, is the exact point here, will lose it. Whoever wishes to, to save his life, to grip it and hang on to it, for dear life, we might say, will lose it. It's going to slip right through. But whoever loses his life, whoever denies himself, whoever recognizes that they are not the center of the world, and, and they do it for my sake, but not for some other sake, they will save it. Is the pathway to salvation. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a man to be in the center of his own world? Because he will forfeit his soul. In 37, he hits on it yet again. He's just beating the same drum for what will a man give in exchange for his soul. The point Jesus is making here is emphasizing the eternal value of a soul. But he's also noting the paradox of the cross, the suffering that he will go through, and the cross that we're called to carry it's followed by a crown. 
not just for Jesus, who is now reigning with a crown and glory seated on the throne, but for everyone who follows Jesus. We'll be made princes and kings in his kingdom, according to Revelation 5. I mentioned earlier, earlier that up until verse 30, 29, everything was pretty smooth. And I think we do face a great temptation in our day of following Jesus up to verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're Christ. You're my Savior. But the full reality is, it even, is an even better truth, a more wonderful truth than that. Not only is he our Savior, he's our King, and he's called us to follow him. He's given us the privilege of being identified with him and taking on his likeness and accomplishing his will in the world. The full reality is a wonderful truth. What Jesus offers here, it's like an advertisement. We don't see it as an advertisement because all the advertisement in our day is false. But there's no false advertising here. It's an advertisement that's actually honest and true. While Christ's teaching on self-denial has an incredibly sobering preface. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. The sobering preface has a glorious conclusion. You're saved. Your soul is forever secure in Him with Christ and the Father in glory. And you're a member of Christ's kingdom of power. Christ's command for us to deny ourselves is bookended with His humiliation on the one hand and His exaltation on the other. And that's the way all biblical commands are. Biblical commands are always rooted or enveloped in the biblical gospel. Because Christ must be the foundation of our faith before he can be the pattern of it. And I alluded to chapter 9, verse 1 already, but this wonderful picture, a promise. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Again, the disciples surely are thinking, how can this be true? What does resurrection look like? What do you mean you're going to die and be raised again? And we'll see, probably next week, the curtain pulled back and the glory of God shining forth at the transfiguration. But again, in this section, that resurrection theme is woven in here. Verse 38, when he comes in the glory of his Father. Even here, the promise for those with ears to hear, he is coming again. And it will be a glorious coming for those who are in him. Oh, but for those who are not in Christ, there's nothing glorious about that coming. Just judgment. So when the question is posed but who do you say that I am? Your life depends on your answer. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Be careful to not be deluded into thinking that there's any other Jesus other than the Jesus of these scriptures. And don't be fooled by people who say that they honor Jesus as a teacher or a prophet without recognizing him as the Christ, who is Lord, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the King. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, the Apostle writes in Colossians 3.1, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
This is encouragement for believers that are living on the earth now. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said to Peter here? You're you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here's Paul saying the same thing. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is a denial of self. All of our identity and hope is in Christ, not in ourselves. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's coming back and we will be with him in glory forever and ever. That's what Paul is saying there to the church at Colossae. And it's what's being emphasized here in the Gospel of Mark from Christ to his people. And it's a wonderful reminder to us going away from here today, but also as we partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper today. If you've been raised up with Christ, if you've repented of your sins, if you're trusting in Him wholeheartedly, keep seeking Him. Keep seeking seeking Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Keep setting your mind on the things that are above. Don't be consumed with the temporal and the earthly. But look up to God, the the one who has invited his people to the table. Consider his greatness and his glory. He's invited us through Christ. There's no other way for you to come to God but through Jesus Christ. Look up to this God who is the unchanging one, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Look up to Him who has loved us with an everlasting love. But we don't want to just look up. I mentioned earlier, taking in the whole counsel of the principle of Scripture, we have to look within. Looking up allows us to better able to see ourselves. We have instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and bloody of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So there are are ways that we should come to the table. There are warnings for us with regard to how we come, how we take, and how we eat. So when we come to the table, it's a time for us to consider our heart before the Lord, to clear accounts with Him by confessing our sin, to make sure that we're genuinely clinging to Christ alone for our righteousness. But we also look back at what Christ has done for us. We see his life and his death. The bread is used to represent his body that was broken for us. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for us. He himself, Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant. The promised new covenant is here. God forgives sinners through the new covenant. It's a better It has a better priest in Jesus. It's a better sacrifice that is also Jesus. And his shed blood is sufficient to save sinners like you and like me. The bread and the cup this morning point us back to the cross, seeing what Christ accomplished for us there. But we don't just look up at God and in at ourselves and back at the cross, but we look around, recognizing that we're not alone. We're part of the 
of a church family, part of the family of God. We're a church composed of various types of people with different experiences and various issues, but we all have two things in common. We are sinners and we are united together by faith in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder this morning that we've been made right with Jesus and are united by Christ in fellowship with one another. And we also look forward. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says he will not drink this cup again until he does in the coming kingdom with his people. What a great anticipation. The next time Jesus takes part in this, you'll be with him. Until then, we keep taking it and we proclaim that he is returning and that we will sit and sup with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the entire church is gathered together to boast in the great saving work of Christ our Lord. So as we come to the table in just a few minutes, let's be reminded that forgiveness and fellowship are at the heart of our lives together as God's children. We've been forgiven before God. We have fellowship with Him and thus with one another. Parents with children, we ask that you guide them with regard to where they stand before the Lord. You have more interaction with them and understand their hearts. Please guide them well. For those who are not in Christ, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for the salvation of your sins, the table is not for you. These elements are for those who have come to Christ. However, Though we are asking you not to come to the table, we are asking you to come to Christ, to run to Him in repentance and faith and find forgiveness in Him. And for those, who are in, who, those of you who are in Christ, who are seeking to walk with Him, repenting and believing, there's a warm welcome to come to the table, to eat and to drink. Looking to God, looking within, looking around, looking back, looking forward. May God help us as we worship him now. Let's pray. God, we again this morning thank you for your word and we pray that you will help us by your grace and for your glory to live in light of it. God, be merciful to us and grant us copious measures of your grace that we might seek to walk with you all of our days, that we might continue denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following after you. God, help us to not cling to our own lives, but to give them up for your sake and for the gospels in order that we might ultimately be saved. God, we have no desire to gain the whole world and forfeit our souls. Teach us the value of a soul, not only, our, not only ours, but others. God, we pray that you'll aid us as we worship you through the Lord's Supper now, that we might remember Christ dying in our stead and Christ being raised in order that he might come again. God, we thank you that he does rule and reign, and we look forward to his coming. God, until then, help us to live more like him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.